was said that we had a common culture that we have since lost. Some of you are too young to remember this, but there was a time in my lifetime when there were only really three networks. Yeah, there was Fox, but Fox didn't have, uh, Fox seemed to be like a fourth one. You know, we had ABS and CBC, CBS, ABC, CBS, and NBC. In the evening, you had your choice. Did you want Peter Jennings? Did you want Dan Rather? Did you want Tom Brokaw? Isn't he from South Dakota? Tom Brokaw. The local paper would be pretty much our only access to, to news uh, as far as on a recent thing. Obviously, you could subscribe to periodicals. The internet was around, uh, but those who had it used it mostly for emails. This wasn't that long ago. We're talking 25 years ago. Uh, we had cordless phones, but they didn't have access. They, they were just landlines. They're, they're just... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? They were, they, were, they were landlines. They were landlines. You couldn't look up the weather on it. You could, certainly couldn't get news. And you couldn't find out interesting things that we care about, like which celebrity is pregnant. Primetime television in the evenings on those three networks was something that we had a, a common culture. You could go to the water cooler the next day and say, hey, did you watch Cheers last night? Ha ha ha, Norm's funny. When he walks in, everyone says, Norm. Today, these networks still produce scripted shows, but so do 15 cable networks. And that's not even counting the streaming services. Unless you think that there's only Netflix, let me tell you, Hulu and, uh, boy, why aren't these coming to me? Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, HBO Max, CBS All Access, The Peacock, Quibi, and Apple TV Plus. Why am I talking about this? Because the best show on TV is one that you probably haven't even heard of. And it is called Ted Lasso. And it's found only on Apple TV Plus. Apple TV Plus, which I'm sure is a service that only half of you have heard of. Ted Lasso is a TV show about, with a preposterous premise. It's about an American football coach who was hired to coach soccer in England. And as preposterous as this sounds, Think for a second about what it takes to be a good coach. Of course, there's a little bit of X's and O's and strategy that's important. Of course, you need that. But ultimately, what makes a good coach goes far beyond a game plan. It goes far beyond offensive or defensive scheme. What makes a coach successful, whether it's bas a basketball coach trying to get five people to work together or a football coach trying to get 11 people to work together, is, is when each of those people, whether it's five, 11, or however many people play in soccer, anyone know? <laughs> I love it. Uh, it doesn't matter, but like, what matters is if those people are working together, you can have the best scheme in the world in football, but if one of your 11 guys isn't playing his position well, if he isn't being his best self on that day, it's gonna be hard to win a game. So a coach needs to communicate with players. A coach needs to motivate them. And this is easier said than done. The best coaches get players to buy in. A good coach can motivate a player at halftime after they're facing a deficit that seems completely un 
uh, something that you completely cannot come back from. A good coach gets buy-in because he or she listens to players and, and knows how to connect with them because they have, they have built a personal relationship with that player. And that's what makes Ted Lasso a great coach. Although he doesn't know the X's and O's of soccer, or he literally asks a referee at the end, can you explain offsides to me? He knows people, and he knows how to win people over. I remember reading an article about the South Dakota State University, the Jackrabbits, the first year that they won the Summit League tournament and made it uh, to the NCAA tournament where they played on national TV, and I think they had their first matchup was against the University of Kansas. Welcome to the big time, Jackrabbits. They, they had gone Division I four years prior and had improved their record every single year. And here they were on the cusp of an NCAA tournament uh, bid. And a national reporter was in the locker room. And I couldn't believe it when I, when I read the pregame speech. So Coach Scott Nagy is a lot like Ted Lasso, except he knows his X's and O's. So they talked about X's and O's, and they were like, talked about how they were going to switch on, on screens. And, and they, talked, they talked strategy, but then he stopped. And he said, I want you to play like you're loved. Play freely. Love isn't dependent on your performance. No matter how you play, you are loved. Play with that in mind. Guess what? They went out and won the game. They overcame a steep first half deficit when trials came because they played like they were loved. Because they heard a gospel presentation, they were able to perform. We believe as Christians that unconditional love from God our Father changes hearts. We believe that the message of the gospel is capable of overcoming the hardest of hearts, the angriest of hearts. The world looks at the church and the Bible and sees judgment. And, and their response is anger at that judgment. Of course, the Bible has judgment for sinners. But it also has a gracious welcome for us. Because each of us are sinners who have been welcomed, not because of our sin, but in spite of our sin. We've been welcomed and accepted by Jesus, not because of our merits, but in spite of our sin. At some point, each of us heard this message, and we understood it, and we believed it in our hearts, and each of us were overcome by this reality that God loves sinners, and this changed our heart. It is this message and this alone that changes hearts. Judgment doesn't change hearts. Condemnation doesn't change hearts. The gospel changes hearts. And once we have wrestled and come to grips and come to terms with God's gracious acceptance of us, we find ourselves at a place where we ask the question, what now? What now? This is what Paul is addressing today in our reading from Philippians. Would you turn with me in your bulletins to page 7, if you're not already there, so we can look at this reading together. It's curious this, that this reading starts at, pay, at verse 14 because it's kind of in the middle of, uh, of a thought. So I want to go back two verses and share with you what Paul has to say starting in verse 12. Here's verse 12. 
not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. In this verse, Paul is giving the reader the vision for being a disciple. As ones who have already been accepted as Christ's own, how do we approach life? Well, first off, we have a realistic self-image. We don't need to ignore or uh, we don't need to ignore our flaws or our sins because we know that we are accepted in spite of them. We don't need to ignore them and, and, and we also don't want blindness in our life. We don't want spiritual blinders on because we know that sin leads to death and we know that sin leads to other sin and so even the smallest sin we want to confess, we want to be aware of because that can get us off track. Small compromises turn into greater compromises. We don't want blindness to sin because we want to push towards righteousness. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. We don't pretend like our sins are not there. We acknowledge our imperfections even as we press on. Our sin is a springboard to press us on to a, to a life, um, to, to, to grasping that righteousness which is already our own. Not in a way where we think that we're earning God's favor, but precisely because we've already been accepted. What does Paul say? He says he presses on to make it his own precisely because Jesus has made him his own. I'll read verse 13 and 14. So this is the verse before today's reading and going into the reading. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what lies behind. Is this something that you're capable of? Or is this hard for you? For a moment, let's just think about what Paul might mean here. In context, he has just listed all the things that uh, before Christ was his own, that he counted as valuable. Uh, he lists his spiritual pedigree. And he says, I count all of that as rubbish in comparison to Christ. That I leave all of that behind and I don't look back. So, so that could be what Paul is saying here. Is that like all the stuff that we've left behind in order to choose Jesus. All the privileges he had in Judaism compared to um, Jesus is, is rubbish. So that this, the context would support it. But, but this could also be, the stuff behind, that we've left behind could also be baggage. For, for us, what does that mean for us to forget what, left, what lies behind? In this church, particularly, we have talked about uh, one of our five values is finding our identity in Christ. And of course, this means forgetting what lies behind, even good things in some senses. We are tempted to find our identity in many things outside of Jesus Christ. Our jobs loom large in this area. Who are we apart from what we do 40 or 50 hours a week? I mean, that's a big chunk of time. And this isn't something that Christians are immune to. Uh, Christians aren't immune to associating their identity with their job. This is what makes unemployment or retirement so disorienting for so many people. Because like, what gets you out of bed 
every day if you're unemployed or retired is, is you've lost that. For some people, parenting is their identity. And so much of their energy is invested in parenting that, that apart from that, they don't really have a self, an identity. And this is why the empty nest is so hard for many people because like, they wake up after dropping their kid off at college and they're like, well, what do I do? Like everything that I used to be and used to do is different. For some, sin looms large in identity. We feel the guilt and the shame over what we've done even though we know that in Christ there is no condemnation. For some, a past trauma looms large, and we associate our identity with something that was done to us, whether divorce or abuse or sexual abuse. But we know that these things do not define us. We find our identity in Christ and Him alone. We belong to Him. We seek to forget what lies behind and we strain forward for what lies ahead. In light of this, I urge you to leave behind all those things, whether it's your job or whether it's sin or whether it's abuse or things that were said about you, no matter what it is. Leave that behind and strain forward. Leave behind your pride. If you will boast, boast in Jesus Christ. Leave behind your doubt and your sin. Leave behind the shame of sin that the Lord doesn't even remember. God's forgiven you your sin. God forgives the sin of those who repent and, with sin and sincerely turn their hearts to him. And he remembers our sin no more, so we should remember our sin no more. We should not look back. We should forget what lies behind. Let us leave that behind and strain forward, pressing onward toward the goal. Let us press onward seeing our sin clearly, the sin that we face daily, our temptations, not as an impediment, but as a springboard, an encouragement to strive onward for the righteousness promised to us. We find that middle ground between uh, wallowing in our sin and, uh, and, and complete forgetfulness that lands in the same place, right? It's a holy discontent saying we're going to strain forward, strain forward seeking Christ with an accurate self-assessment. Have, have you ever been on, on a diet and, and a, a small itty-bitty indulgence has led to a huge indulgence? You're like, I'm going to have one Hershey's kiss. And 20 minutes later, you're lying on the kitchen floor after 50 Hershey's kisses. Because that one little small indulgence, you're like, that's it. I give up. I'm going to eat the whole thing. These... We, we don't want to do that um, spiritually, right? We, we don't want to see, as we accurately assess ourselves, when we see small things, we don't want that to lead us into, um, into wallowing in our sin, but we want to take that sin to God. In verse 15, Paul says, Paul writes, Let those of us who are mature think in this way. So ultimately what is he, he is encouraging us towards is Maturity. What does that look like? Thankfully, he gives us an example. It's not this vague sense of like what maturity looks like. He says, imitate me. Friends, do you think people who knew Paul thought that he was perfect? 
Absolutely. Absolutely not. Anybody who knew Paul, like they knew he was a human being. They may have admired him in a lot of ways, but there's no way they would have thought that he was perfect. So he's saying, here is an example that you are capable of following. He's not calling them to a place, and this is key. Paul is not calling them to a place that he's not willing to go himself. As a leader, he says, follow me. I am your example. In your maturity, seek this path. As we strive for Christ-likeness, that can be intimidating because we know that Jesus was completely without sin. That, and we know that Paul has wrestled with sin and temptation and of every sort. And he has found maturity. But he's still in maturity. He still presses onward, ever onward, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead. Then, as is usual, for, is the case for Paul, as he gives them, just as he gives them a positive example to follow, he also gives them a negative example to avoid. Just as I said a few weeks ago when, when, when we were in Romans, and he said, seek what is good, abhor what is evil. Just as coaches will say, here's the way you shoot a basketball, here's how you don't shoot a basketball, here's how you block in football, here's, how you, here's what you want to avoid. He says, walk in the example I've shown you, but watch out until our dying day, because until we meet Jesus, we will be faced with temptations. We aren't tempted in the same way, but Paul saw his brothers and his sisters fall to temptations. And right now, in this text, he says he's wiping tears away as he remembers those who have fallen away. Those who fell prey to temptations. And he isn't saying that we have only particular things to look for. He talks about those who have fallen away. He says their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame. This is an intentionally vague statement. It's not saying, well, as we seek to follow Christ, there are three things you've got to avoid. No, no, no. Like, there are a lot of things to avoid. There's no one singular bodily temptation that gets people off track. For some, it's substance abuse. It's alcohol or drugs or even food. For some, it's sexual immorality. Many have chosen what feels good over what they know is right. And here's the thing. Regardless of what your weakness is, don't indulge in it. Don't allow one Hershey's kiss to become 50. Because here's the reality, you will be tempted. You'll never be totally free from temptation. I'm sure that each of you have shed tears at one point over a brother or a sister who has given in to temptation. And I don't mean a temptation that they've repented and received reconciliation for. I mean they've chosen bodily pleasures over Jesus forever. I met a guy at a, at a retreat once who was a brilliant biblical scholar, just a blast to visit with. Of course, our society doesn't really value great biblical scholars, so he was teaching high school, which I love. As a former teacher myself, it's, it's, it's a high thing to commit your life to education. And I love it when people invest their talents in, in, in kids. But anyway, we were talking, and he was talking about this friend of his who was even more brilliant. He's just like, this guy was amazing. And, and as we were talking about this friend of his, um, I mean, it was clear that they had developed this deep friendship 
that, that transcended just the common interest in, in uh, the Hebrew Bible. They bonded over the love of the church and over, over being a dad. And as this guy wistfully recalled this brilliant scholar friend of his, this faithful Christian, he also recalled how this guy, this friend of his, walked away from it all. A guy who knew Jesus. He left behind his career, his church, his faith, his wife, and his children. For a woman he, he decided to have an affair with and stay with. I can assure you that those who knew this man, I don't even know his name, shed many tears over his choice. Temptations are always present. So we need encouragement to hold true to what we have attained. Paul wrote, their God is their belly. Here's the question that we face every day. Friends, will you let your appetites dictate your life? Those temptations, those appetites you feel, will you let that dictate your life? Will you seek to satisfy yourself with fleeting pleasures? Friends, let us press onward. Let us strain ahead day by day, learning to control our appetites, using the means we have as a church to encourage one another and seek out accountability so that we do not fall prey to our appetites and desires, those sins which tempt us and lead, as we know, they lead not to pleasure but to destruction. We have chosen a path where our lowly bodies, as Paul writes, will one day be made like his glorious body. In the meantime, let us abhor what is evil and seek what is good. Let us, every one of us, press onward and do all we can to support each other in this. This is hard. It's scary because it means being vulnerable. It means being real. And, and I gotta be honest, I know that it's scary being real in the church. Why? Because sometimes as you open up, as you're vulnerable with people in the church, it turns out that some of them are just collecting intel on you. But we can't let that sin of, of, of like the, the, the hurt that we've experienced or that we've heard of, because certainly I've heard many stories of people who are seeking godliness and confessing sin and, and confiding in another. Um, we can't let that fear of being vulnerable let us keep our sins secret. Secret sin is sin that, that kills us from the inside out. It means we, we need to be different from many churches where lowering your guard is fatal to yourself. It's vulnerable. It is. But we need it as we spur each other onward. Every